I'm very grateful to Andreas Gestrich, director of the German Historical Institute in London, for this um, invitation and for his very kind and very detailed introduction this evening. This um, invitation is a great honor for me and um, also a great pleasure to be here in this wonderful institute, one of the most uh, impressive rooms uh, which uh, I gave lecture. And I want to add that I'm also very grateful to Andreas Gestrich and to the Institute that um, it supported and encouraged by scholarships and by prizes, prizes now, uh, doctoral students uh, from our university and also doctoral students which I am supervising. Hence, um, if I ever become millionaire in my life, I shall talk only three minutes next time and give a lot of money, donate a little lot of money to the Institute. <laughs> okay, don't, no, no, no applause, please. I didn't do it. <laughs> the topic of this evening, and I think um, this audience is extremely qualified uh, for this topic, and there are several people in this room who might give a much better talk than I do. The topic of this evening is the 1970s in Europe with the question, which was mentioned by Andreas Gestrich, uh, a period of disillusionment or promise. I think most people, if the, the Google is a good indicator, most people think that the 1970s was a decade of pop music, of important films, and of design. Um, so they remember Michael Jackson or Bob Marley or Mireille Mathieu or Clockwork Orange. But those historians who are now starting to work on the 1970s often discuss totally different topics, even though they might have been, they might have adored pop music when they were youngsters. In a recent lecture in Berlin, David Elwood, an Italo-British historian of the Cold War, called the 1970s the most shocking de decade in Europe since the Second World War. Konrad Jarosz, Konrad Jarosz a German-American historian, gave his book on the 1970s the perhaps less spectacular but still depressing title the end of confidence, das Ende der Zuversicht, with a question mark. Gabriele Metzler, my colleague at the Humboldt University, called her recent book A Crisis of Governing Since the 1970s, against the question marks, but still the title is not very positive, as did Antonio Vasori, a known Italian historian who speaks in the title of his book of the crisis of the 1970s, La Crisi degli anni 70. Conversely, Serge um, Chassaigne, a French specialist of British history, in a recent book on the 1970s, chose the subtitle, Beginnings of Our Modernity, Origine de Notre Modernité, 
and the British author, Alvin Turner, seemingly in contradiction to Gabriele Metzler and, Con and Antoni Valsori, gave his book uh, on the 1970s the title, Crisis, What Crisis? And Tony Judd called a chapter of his book on post-war, one of the chapters on the 1970s, New Realism. So at the moment when the archives are opened and historians take over the decade of the 1970s, which was abandoned by social scientists since long time, two interpretations emerge. The dark interpretation of decline, of crisis, of disillusionment on the one hand, and the bright interpretation of the beginnings of our modernity, of new pragmatism, and even of promise, on the other hand. The debate, this debate among historians will be the topic of my lecture, which looks at the 1970s not as a specific era, but as a major turning point, or should say a turning period, after the 20th century. I shall first present a dark view, then I shall present um, to you the bright interpretation of the 1970s, and at the end, in a long conclusion of about 11 and a half minutes, um, I shall ask how important 1970s are as a turning period, in what way they are, they are very, a very special turning period, different from most other turning periods in the 20th century, in what way this is a European turning point, and which view is more convincing, the dark view or the bright view. So I try to answer the question. I don't want to leave it open, I promise it. But why the 1970s? Not, why not another decade? As far as I can see, the debate on the 1970s among historians is emerging for four reasons. Firstly, the 1970s have a special charm as a turning point. This turning point primarily covers economic and culture, and much less politics and international relations, as in the case of most other turning points, such as 1789, 1815, 1848, 1914, 1945, and 1989. In the 1970s, no war or no revolution broke out, and no empire broke down, except of the Portuguese colonial empire, which was perhaps not in the center of European history. Secondly, the 1970s are particularly attractive because of the burning topics of this era. The oil shock, the breakdown of Keynesianism and state intervention, political violence, the upheaval of values, the massive criticism of state intervention, the new social movements, um, and uh, the new dissident groups the new debate on environmental and energy, contrasts between secularism and uh, the rising importance of religion, 
in politics, the new impetus of European integration and in Cold War detente. Thirdly, the debate on the 1970s is stimulated by the contrasting view of different generations of historians, those who lived in the Trente Glorieuse and saw the deplorable end of this period in the 1970s, this is to me my generation, and the younger generation, now also an established generation, who experienced only the post-boom situation and see this situation as normal. A fourth and more general reason why historians discuss these decades such as the 1970s is one of their obsession, the passion for discussing upheavals and turning points and the passion for singling out historical eras. Rankes, Leopold Rankes, famous and bold dictum, every epoch is immediate to God, jede epoche ist unmittelbar zu Gott, even tries to use God for this obsession. The obsession is perhaps the major reason why historians are different from social scientists and cultural scientists who are more interested in typologies or in anthropological models. Historians love to discuss questions such as, as how Victorian is the Victorian era? How long is the long 19th century? How short is the short 20th century? This passion is also behind the debate on whether the 1970s are the major turning point between the end of the Second World War in 1945 and the end of the division of Europe in 1989. I want, as I said, uh, raise this question with uh, some special accent. I'm asking also the question not for a specific European country, not for Britain or for Germany, but for the whole of Europe. I shall start with the main arguments of the dark views. I shall present you, I think, seven arguments of the dark view, which is, as you will see, not homogenous in the sense of a theory or of a political direction or of a specific, specific national or regional uh, view. First argument of the dark view, the 1970s are shocking, first of all, because of the emerging political violence in Europe. The terrorism in Spain by the Basque Eta, the violent rough in West Germany, the even more violent, in terms of numbers of death, even more violent Italian Brigadi Rossi, and also the violence in Northern Ireland, Northern Ireland between Protestants and Catholics. This was and still is shocking, since a crucial and astonishing, also astonishing achievement of the years after the Second World War was the end not only of international violence, but also of domestic violence in Europe, in contrast to the post 
war years after World War I, when political violence was widespread, domestic political violence was widespread in many continental European countries. The post-Second World War achievement of non-violent domestic politics was endangered, endangered in the 1970s in four major European countries, three countries who experienced a dictatorship, but only, or also one country who had a long, stable democratic tradition. Second argument, the second shock of the 1970s was the economic. The two oil shocks in 1973 and 1979, with the rise of the oil price from about less, from less than $3 to almost $25 and even almost $50 at the end of the decade. You know that the dollar, that the price fell in the 1980s, but during the 1970s, this was an incredible rise of the oil price. Today, some historians say that uh, the oil shocks were helpful since the Europeans became aware of the costs of this type of energy. However, historians who take the dark view of the 1970s argue with good reasons that the oil shocks had very negative effects for the European economies. They contributed to high inflation during the 1970s, which was stopped later. They also contributed to reduction of economic growth rates in Europe and hence to the end of a quarter of a century of exceptionally high rates of economic growth and low rates of unemployment. As a consequence, the extraordinary increase in real income, the affluent public budgets and the generous public spending also came to an end. The first oil shock also was accompanied by um, something which was also a shock in the 1970s for many Europeans, the breakdown of the international currency uh, system of Bretton Woods with its fixed exchange rates. This system, Bretton Woods, had been helpful for international trade and also had given much of the responsibility for the international currency system to one single actor, to the American government, rather than to groups of rich countries, which often, are, as we can see uh, in the recent past, which often are not able to make good common decisions. Third argument, closely related to economic change, was a cultural change. The end of the optimistic view of a future with continuously rising income and living standards, standards a continuous improvement um, by urban planning, a continuous decline of sicknesses due to progress in medical research. The grand vision of the future by the futurology, the new scientific discipline, was in the 1970s less and less accepted. 
skepticism about economic and social prospects increased, expressed in a radical way in the slogan, no future. Postmodernism started at the end of the 1970s. It is criticized by the dark view, uh, as far as cultural history is concerned, by the dark view, because of its exclusive focus on crisis, on chaos, on contingency, on the misjudgments and errors of the Enlightenment, the rise of pop art, another important development in cultural history in the 1970s, is also seen as a decline from the point of view of the dark side because of its proximity to trivial mass consumption and publicity and because of the rejection of um, classic aesthetics. Literary critiques, as the German-Polish Marcel Reichranitzky, deplore the obvious lack of manifest groups of writers in the 1970s. Further argument, the dark view uh, of the, for the dark view of the 1970s, this theory is also a disillusionment because they marked the end of the golden years of the welfare state in a dual sense. From the 1970s onwards, the welfare state consensus disappeared and skepticism became more important in the public debate on the welfare state, but also on urban planning, on the health service and on education. Criticism, I think this is important, criticism came from various political quarters, from the neoliberal side, because of the high costs of the welfare state and um, the threat to individual initiative, from the new social movements, because of the immobile bureaucracies of the welfare state and because of the overly exclusive coalition between state, big business and big trade unions, and finally also from the supporters of the welfare state because of its apparent inadequacies, especially for the new poor, for women who did not work outside the household, for people in the fourth age. In addition, welfare reforms also tended to change. Reforms increased that did not extend welfare, ser welfare services and payments, but were aimed at reducing costs, increasing efficiency, and encouraging self-help. This was not a sudden change, but a gradual transition brought about mainly by the less affluent public budgets. This happened in social security, in health, in education, in urban planning. A fifth argument, a further disillusionment, was the decline of governability of the European democracies, parallel to the decline of legitimacy of Eastern European regimes. 
Governability declined not only because of the economic difficulties, which um, I just mentioned. The decline was also related to the shrinking of the um, Christian democratic, conservative, and social democratic electorate, to the rise of the one-issue parties, and uh, to the new social movements, also to the new volatility of the voters. Some historians argue that this difficult governability, together with the new political violence, to which I come back, led to particularly rigid divisions in political culture in the 1970s, without much chance of governing by compromise and broad consensus. These rigid demarcation lines between left and right at that time were detected everywhere in politics of education, of welfare, of health, of security, in foreign relations, even in consumption and lifestyle, in music, in haircuts, in clothing, in restaurants, in family education. A sixth argument of the dark side, during the 1970s, belief in secularization as part of modernization became less sure. The role of religion and churches changed. Religion regained some of its importance in politics. To be sure, the most spectacular event was outside Europe, the Mullah revolution in Iran, which was a mysterious sort of revolution for many Europeans, so different from normal European revolutions. But it was clear that the importance of religion was growing not only in the Near East, but also in Europe. The Pope, John Paul II, elected in 1978, was a sign on the wall. I remember very well Fernand Braudel, who was a laicist, as you know, a laicist French historian, foretold his seminar, in his seminar in 1978, that religion would become a major future topic in politics and therefore also in history. If this forecast would have been given by a British or a German historian, nobody would remember. But in France, with her strong laicist values, this forecast was an indicator of change. The seventh um, argument of the dark side, the 1970s were also a disappointment after some hope in two important aspects of international relations, in European integration and in detente during the Cold War. All projects of European integration during the years of hope at the beginning of the 1970s failed or did not meet expectations. The project of a European currency and economic union, 
the Werner, especially the Werner Plan of 1973, failed because of the end of Bretton Woods and because of the enormous contrasts in budget and currency policies between the member states. The project of the political union, um, especially the Tindemans reports of 1974, also failed because there was no revolution by the member states in the European Council. The only success was the enlargement of the European economic community, as it was called at that time, by the, by the new members, Britain, Denmark and Ireland. However, it was um, a long time before the conflict between Britain over the budget question was resolved. They thought in the Cold War during the 1970s seemed to proceed well with negotiations between the United States and the USSR on disarmament, especially on nuclear weapons, and also in the negotiations uh, of the Helsinki Agreement in 1977. The West Germans' Ostpolitik also seemed to have reached its goals. However, at the end of the 1970s, the Cold War returned when the USSR invaded in Afghanistan and, when, and because of the rearmament policy of the NATO. Connected with this dark view of the 1970s is um, uh, the idea that the 1950s and 1960s were a glorious period a part of the trente glorieuse, as the French economist Jean Fourastier called it, uh, the Wirtschaftswunder, uh, or the Miracolo Economico, as it was called in, at that time in Germany and Italy. And when I teach to Italian students, I see, when I speak of the Miracolo Economico, I see that the faces are getting bright. They, even, they know it even today. Or the Golden Age, as it was called by Eric Hobsbawm, and he wanted to cover with this term Western Europe and Eastern Europe at the same time. It is important that these notions are used only by historians of Europe. Notions with a similar meaning cannot be found in uh, works um, on the <coughs> United States or in Latin America or China, or India, or, or Africa. They do have golden ages, but not in the 1950s and 1960s. This, the period of 1950s and 1960s is seen as a bright for five reasons. The continuous high growth, almost Chinese growth in our eyes. The enormous rise of the real wages, which in 1975 were about four times as high as in 1950 in France, three times as high in Germany and Sweden, uh, more than two times as high in Britain and Italy. The enormous increase, increase of public budgets, which in 1975 were between 10 to 25 times as high 
as in 1950 in nominal, nominal terms. The golden age of the welfare state is another important element of this um, uh, positive view of the 1950s, 1960s. The golden age of the welfare state, of the city and highway planning, of improved health services, of educational, rapid educational expansion. The belief in the continuous progress of mankind by planning and state intervention. Uh, and finally, in both Western and Eastern uh, variants. And finally, also the advancement in international cooperation instead of war. By the European economic integration in economic terms, but also um, by transatlantic integration in the military sense of the NATO and indeed in the economic sense through the World Bank and through GATT, in other words, the Pax Americana, and for Eastern Europeans, the guarantee of peace by the Soviet bloc. The bright view of the 1970s, there's also a bright view of this period, and this contrasting view is also not homogeneous. Here are the main arguments. I think I have only, uh, only five arguments, but it doesn't mean anything. Please don't count. <laughs> the first argument, the 1970s are first seen as a reinforcement of democracy. Some historians even call the 1970s, the second democratization in Europe. It happened, however, in different ways in different regions. In Western Europe, the 1970s were the golden age of the new social movements, the new women's movement, the regional movement, which started already in the 1960s, the environmental movement, the human rights movement, and finally also, at the end of the 1970s, beginning 1980s, the peace movement. Each of these movements was different in geography, in methods, in supporters, and in the goals. But they all led to new ways of participation for the citizens in Europe, and hence are seen as a reinforcement of democracy. In southern Europe, the right-wing Authoritarian regimes were transformed into Western democracies, mainly by domestic forces and men, also with the help from the other European countries, Western European countries, but, and I think this is important, without military intervention from outside. The Franco regime, the Salazar regime, and the Greek dictatorship of the military generals came to an end. The heavy burden, the heavy moral burden of dictatorships for Western Europeans was gone. Democracy became a more peaceful model. In the eastern part of Europe, new circles of dissidents emerged who were in fundamental opposition to the regime 
and who did not share the communist principles, especially in Poland, the so-called core group, uh, opposition emerged besides the Charter 77 in Czechoslovakia. The milieus of artists in other countries of Central Europe became more autonomous in relation to the communist regimes. This is why Adam Mischnik, the former dissident and liberal uh, newspaper editor in Poland, believes that 1989 started in the 1970s. Second argument of the Bright View is economic. Um, economic um, liberalization and more shared responsibility and uh, thus the mobilization of economic potentials is in the center of this second argument. Liberalization was um, introduced on the one hand on the international level, which is often forgotten, with the end of Bretton Woods. That means with the end of the fixed exchange rate, which were only changed in conflicts and difficult negotiations between governments, the new free-floating of currencies, which was strongly advocated by the neoliberal economists of the Mount Pelerin Society, which met uh, 20, which started to meet about 20 years ago, reflected more directly the changing economic strength and weaknesses of the national economies. The new situation, the floating of currency, currencies also gave more responsibility to Europeans and Japanese for the global currency system, rather than putting, we mentioned before, rather than putting total responsibility to one single government. Uh, this means the United States. On the other hand, the 1970s were also a period of greater domestic responsibility according to this argument and liberalization of uh, domestic policies, the fight of, uh, against inflation uh, of um, up to 10% on the European uh, levit, uh, level and up to 25% in some years in some uh, individual countries by more budget, public budget discipline was successful. Deregulation didn't really start in the 1970s, but um, it was prepared by the rising impact of uh, monetarists and neoliberals in the public debate, in government policies, especially in Britain and the Netherlands, and uh, also with the rise of private media in the 1970s. Though one has to say that the major uh, momentum of uh, uh, deregulation started, which still is going on in our time, started only in the 1980s. Third argument, partly as a consequence of these economic changes, the optimism of the Trente Glorieuse um, 
which uh, is regarded from this point of view often as naive, was gradually replaced by a skeptical pragmatism or realism, as Anthony Chutt has labeled it, a view, a pragmatism, which could see more clearly the negative side of the Trente Glorieuse, to which I shall return in a moment. Planning became a routine operation rather than exciting political adventure. The collective benefits, very much of the, at the center of the earlier visions in East and West, were replaced by a stronger sensibility for individual situations and liberties. Power came back as a topic instead of grand visions with power left out. Contingencies were taken as seriously as, seriously as general social rules. Futurology lost much of its influence. Fourth argument, the Pride view regards the 1970s as a transition towards more social and cultural options for the individual. The conformism of the period before was gradually given up. Let me just give two examples, one from family history and another one from the history of social classes. The former predominant standard European family model with the mother as housewife and the father as breadwinner gave way to a variety of family models besides the classic model, also the model with both parents active as breadwinners, the stable family without formal marriage, the single parent family, the patchwork family, the couple choosing to have no children at all, also less discussed but important, new family business models in which um, the role of women was more equal to the role of men. The former predominant conformist class consumption dissolved and gave way to an individual mix of consumption styles combining upper class and lower class elements, football with wine, chains with pearl necklaces, pizza with playing golf, bus tours with St. Moritz or Cannes. The pressure towards conformism of the period before gave way to new plurality, pluralities of lifestyles. The individualization process started in the 1970s and so did the sociological theory of individualization. Fifth and last argument, the new upswing in covering the international relations, the new upswing in European integration in the, new, in the early 1970s, which failed, 
was still important in setting the expectations for the future by the three general goals which I mentioned before. From the 1970s onward, European integration was only accepted by its supporters if the European currency and economic policy and the European political union advanced and also if the European Union was enlarged to include, if desired, the other parts of Europe. Substantial parts of these three goals were reached in the next quarter of a century. In the spirit of the early 1970s, through the common European economic policy, and the European political union are still on the agenda. The same is true of détente. Even if détente seems to have failed in the short run with the return of the Cold War at the end of the 1970s, the Helsinki <coughs> Agreement had important long-term consequences since the hope for human rights in Eastern Europe was encouraged in part uh, um, led to the return of uh, democracy in Eastern Europe. The bright view of the 1970s, which as you see is also not homogenous and includes Eastern and Western views, left and right wing arguments, is often connected to a more skeptical view of the 1950s and 1960s and a greater sensibility for the shortcomings of this period. The limits of growth, the waste of energy, the threat to the environment, the shortcomings of the welfare state for the new poor, for immigrants, for housewives, for the fourth age, and the misplanning and shortcomings of health services, urban planning and mass education, the lack of sense of costs and efficiency, but also the lack of interest in badly organized social groups are elements of this view. My conclusion, I hope I keep the 11 and a half minutes. Let me finish with a long conclusion for a normal talk. I hope, uh, I hope the Institute will survive. Long conclusion by asking how important, how special, how European was this turning point, and finally, as I promised, whether it was a disillusionment or a promise. The 1970s undoubtedly were an important turning point in terms of the reduced rates of growth and rising unemployment, the farewell to Keynesian policies and the arrival of liberal approaches, the beginnings, the early beginnings of the deregulation, especially in the media, rising inequality, the new social movements and the decline of the classic trade unions, new options uh, for um, social life, family, consumption and other parts of social life, a new understanding of um, Europe as an immigrant uh, 
continent, a different Americanization in consumption by burger restaurants, by mass movies, and by the new PC, which arrived in the 1970s. A distinct change in culture, <coughs> in the visions of the uh, future, in high culture, popular culture, as well as in human sciences, a return of religion, a new attempt um, at detente and the role of human rights in international politics. A new approach in European integration, a new test of governability for European democracies, also which I have left out, sorry, new questions in history and social sciences. Most of these tendencies persist until the present. Therefore, many writers take um, the 1970s as an element for the organization of their books. Eric Hobsbawm, as well as um, Harold James, Tony Chutt, as well as Mark Mazawa, did this. And uh, we will see what we do with uh, our history of Europe. Professor Wirsching is here, whether we also take this 1970s as a turning point. Second argument of the conclusion, the turning point of the 1970s has a very special, even unique character in the 20th century. It was, as I said before, not imposed by wars or by breakdowns of empires, such as in 1918, 1945 and 1989, but by rapid economic changes and cultural upheavals. It was a silent break, a silent turning point, an upheaval beyond spectacular political events, a soft, as some historians say, a soft turning point. In some ways, this turning point was an alternative to 1989. During the 1970s, the center of change was in Western Europe, with strong effects in Eastern Europe. In 1989, the center of change was in Central and Eastern Europe, with strong effects um, in Western Europe. The turning point of the 1970s shows up in historiography, but it is not remembered in memorial days. It is rarely the topic of speeches by politicians. There is no single photo which can be seen as the most telling one for the 1970s. It is also difficult to find eyewitnesses for the change of the 1970s as a major general turning points. I personally did not observe, did not understand this change at that time. To be sure, social scientists and perhaps even some historians, not many, were aware of the fundamental change. But um, they could not find a comprehensive term which would grasp the turn in all its dimensions. This was shown by a recent book in, by 
Professor Dermy Manteuffel and Professor Raphael. By contrast, in 1989, everybody was aware of uh, the traumatic turning point, even me. 1989 is uh, at the center of uh, commemorative events, even at the beginning of this week, there was uh, a big event in this respect. Uh, it was at the center of speeches by politicians and historians. There are some photos which are us usually taken as symbolic photos of the 1989, especially the photo of young adults standing on the wall and looking at uh, GDR army, um, army officers um, or army soldiers. Eyewitnesses of 1989 are constantly interviewed on the TV. To be sure, a contrast exists between a bright and a dark view also for 1989, similar to that in, in the 1970s. These views even cover sometimes similar developments. But it seems to me that the pride view clearly predominates for 1989, even though perhaps less distinct in Eastern Europe because of the actual economic crisis. There was an interesting article, probably you read it yesterday in The Guardian. The 1970s, in my view, were also a European turning point. It was um, a specifically European turning point since it was more distinct in Europe than elsewhere in the world. The economic uh, side of this turning point was, uh, to a large extent, more brutal in Europe since economic growth had been far greater in Europe than elsewhere, with the obvious exception of Japan. To be sure, the other element of the economic turn, uh, the uh, breakdown of Bretton Woods, was a Western rather than a European event. However, it affected, as the oil crisis, but I take this example, it affected the countries of Europe in a special way. It was a push towards more European responsibility for global currency policies. This responsibility was much more difficult to take, to accept for Europe as a whole than for Japan because of the highly contrasting national economic policies in Western Europe. The cultural side of the, 19, of the change of 1970s, the cultural upheaval was also a special European turn since the rise of the so-called post-materialistic values had, had been more distinct in Western Europe than in most other parts of the world and um, uh, hence the change towards more materialistic values due to economic difficulties, above all, was also more distinct in Europe. The much more difficult question um, is um, whether the 1970s have been a turning point for the whole 
of Europe, or whether the eastern part of Europe, the southern part of Europe, or even Britain was excluded from this turning point. So one could ask the question whether this turning point was uh, a regional turning point rather than a European one, or to put this question in a sharper way, is this only a Rhenish turning point from the Rhenish model to the Rhenish sickness, a European history in Rhenish eyes? I shall start with the eastern part of Europe. Here, in fact, in my view, the 1970s were also a turning point. The economic dynamics also slowed down. However, this manifested itself not in a slowdown of growth rates, but in, uh, in an increased international indebtedness. The cultural upheaval in Eastern Europe was also distinct, but in a different way. The communist regimes started, as I said before, to lose their attractiveness. Not only did more Western visitors return disappointed from the USSR, more importantly, the opposition in Eastern Europe started to change, as has been mentioned before. In Southern Europe, the 1970s were also a time of upheaval, but also, one can argue, in a different way. In Spain, as I mentioned before, in Spain, Portugal and Greece, this was a return to democracy. In many ways, also a modernization of the economies and societies. Above all, a definite opening, opening towards the West, which was previously limited to the elites, to the immigrants, and to the tourism economy. But are these two 1970s, the Western European one and the Southern European one, in fact, two totally independent turning points, are they not connected by the increase of economic difficulties, by detente, by the growing attractiveness of European integration, by the social movements which contributed to the fall of dictatorship in southern Europe? Final question, is Britain included? At first glance, Britain was very different. Economic growth was reduced to a lesser extent since the wealthy Britain took part much less in the Trente Glorieuse, which was a glory especially for the impoverished European countries uh, much more struck by the war. But on the other side, Britain played an important role in the 1970s in Europe in various ways. It was not only important for the popular music, music and lifestyle in that decade, it also took part in the new social movements. Britain was especially important 
for the change of the view of the welfare state and for the new European economic policies, for the decline of Keynesianism and the rise of monetarism and de-regulation. Hence, Britain provided an important momentum for the 1970s in Europe. My last um, uh, quarter of a minute, were the 1970s in the end a period of disillusionment or promise? They were a strong disillusionment in two respects. They shattered the hope of a permanent and uh, permanently strong economic growth with a continuous <coughs> rise in salaries and public budgets and with a continuous full employment. And in addition, the, they shattered the expectation of a continuous expansion of the welfare state and health services and a continuous improvement of life by urban and state planning. In three other respects, however, the 1970s did not represent disillusionment. Political violence did not persist, and what is perhaps more important, the governments did not overreact and did not substantially cut down civil liberties. In addition, European integration did not constantly fall short of the aims of the early 1970s, and the period of detente did not simply end, but had long-term effects. Were the 1970s a period of promise? They were not a period of new promises in the sense of grand visions, but a positive turn in three respects, a period of reinforcement of democracy almost as important as 1945, or the years after 1945 and the years after 1989. They were a period of new pragmatism and efficiency instead of grand visions of a new society in, in international relations as well as in domestic policies. And they were also a period of more options of the individual. Thank you very much for your patience.